Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark and you're probably listening to this thinking, Mark, where have you been? You've had a couple of months off and do you know what? I'm guilty. I took a well-earned break and I will say it's well-earned because I've been doing podcasting now for over five years. As you know, my other podcast, Skip the End, has recently come to an end. It's gone out on a high, we're all great friends, and we actually celebrated the end because we felt that we gave our best. And you know what? We had such a fun blast with it, and now it's all about just kind of leaving it as a high and not kind of getting people to go, hmm, Skip the End, they used to be good. But this is about Mark and me, and I'm here today to give you a brand new episode. So joining me on today's episode is the film director, Bernard Rose. And do you know what? I'm absolutely thrilled. He's responsible for directing one of my favourite horrors growing up. One of those first movies that actually scared the shit out of me. Yes, the original Candyman. What a classic horror. Honestly, we get to talk about this loads on today's interview. We also get to talk about the 2010 film Mr. Nice, one of my favourite books. Howard Marks is absolutely brilliant. And to get to talk about the film and all about the casting and everything else is great. And on this interview today, we also get to talk about his most recent film, Samurai Marathon 1855. So there's loads to talk about and loads to go through. And I can't wait to get it to you. But you know the score by now. Even though I've been away, things don't change. I like to touch base and talk about the last episode. Now, it was quite a while ago. It was before Christmas. But I was joined by Chris from the band Dashboard Confessional. And you know what? I forget about how big this band is. Dashboard Confessional are huge. They've been going 20 years. So to know I was lucky enough to sit down with him during his UK tour, it was mind-blowing. It was a huge interview and one of my most downloaded yet. So it was a really good high to end the year on. But I'm back now. It's 2020 and I've got loads of interviews in the bag already to share with you. So it's back on track. Weekly episodes will be coming. I'm going to be spending a lot more time with my Patreons. You're going to be getting exclusive episodes just for you. But you know the score by now. I'll talk about that at the end of today's episode. What I want to do now is get straight to today's interview. So let's sit back and listen to me and Bernard Rose talking all things film. So Bernard, thank you for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Well, thank you for having me. My first question is, and it's for the listeners out there, is to take it right back to the very start of your career. When you were growing up, what were those early films that you were watching that really kind of captured your imagination or made you fall in love with film? Well, you know, I was very lucky in that when I was a teenager, in my young teenage years, it was such a glorious time for cinema. And, and, you know, it was the era of Don't Look Now and The Exorcist and The Devils and, you know, early 70s. And, you know, there were, obviously it's pre video that era. So, Films would stick around in a theatre, so you could go to a theatre and watch The Wild Bunch, and you could see all these things that were so kind of decadent and dangerous and violent and shocking and um, extreme and, and, and powerful. I mean, I mean, I remember coming out of a film like Deliverance, for example, and as a as a fourteen year old, completely like could hardly breathe <laughs> um and you know so it was a wonderful time for those kind of really exciting challenging films and i think those that that really got me into cinema in a really big way and also i i used to go to school i went to school in hampstead in north london i don't know where are you from mark i don't know where you're from uh shrewsbury so i'm a shropshire boy 
Okay, so you don't know, do you know London, do you know North London at all? I know it quite well, I go there now and then, but I'm not a huge uh, visitor, but when I am there, I, I'm a big fan. Well, anyway, I was at this kind of rather awful school in in um, in uh, Hampstead, but I lived the other side of the park in Highgate, so I used to sag off school like twice a, a week, and there was a, a movie theatre, um, instead of playing... They wanted us to go and play sports at the sports field, but there was a movie theatre in Hampstead at the time that was called The Everyman, which is now a, one of those dull chains. But back then it was a real, genuine, authentic uh, repertory house. We used to change the programme every day. And, and, yeah, they would do things when I was a teenager, like running every single film that Ingmar Bergman ever made. So I would skip school and just sit in there in the afternoons and watch Bergman films. And, you know... I went in there mostly just to, to, just to get off school, but after a while, you started to really get into them. I think I saw every single film that Bergman ever made when I was 14. <laughs> I mean, that's some really good foundation. Some of the films like Don't Look Now and some of the Exorcist, these titles are absolute classics. And I mean, to start with such a, a huge cult, these films are absolute masterpieces. To have those in place to then shape your taste of film is pretty damn good. I had stuff like Police Academy and... Uh, not, yeah, not, not as good. Great, you know, and I remember, you know, obviously, then I started to get a taste for the extreme and a taste for anything a bit different. That's why I remember going to see, uh, you know, Salo when it first came out, and it was, even though it was somewhat censored at the time, it was still completely eyeball um, scarring, and 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 this was this was what I was into. So you know, so to me, for example, when the first Star Wars came out, which was seventy seven. Yeah, uh, I was I was like, oh, that's uh, a nice children's film. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, quite it, tame. It wasn't it wasn't scarring like these other things I'd seen, or like Taxi Driver. I remember when I remember seeing Taxi Driver when it first came out in a theatre in London, and and being completely, I didn't know which way to go home. It was like everything looked terrifying and ominous after you came out of that film, you know. You're watching some amazing films here, but at what point were you really noticing the craftsmanship about the films, not just enjoying the actual ride of going to the cinema? When was it when you started to look at the directing or the cinematography or the editing and starting to think, this is something I'd like to do? Well, honestly, all the time, because I all throughout that period, I was a very keen amateur filmmaker. Um, and I got myself... I was making 16mm films, actually, on, a, on an old clockwork Bolex. Um using Kodachrome reversal film. You know, you could buy 100 feet of Kodachrome. It was about seven pounds. And then you'd mail it off to Hemel Hempstead and they would um, process it and it would come back. Um, so I was I was shooting this stuff all the time. I'm making films. And when I was 15, uh, the BBC used to, this was in 1976, the BBC used to have a, a competition a young filmmaker of the year or something, and you had to send in your movie and it had to be three minutes long. And the prize was they were going to show it on TV. Um, and so I, I, I mean, I think I um, entered this competition like every year for about four years. And eventually when I was 16, I won it. <laughs> wow. So um, that was a big deal at the time because the, the film went on the BBC one at tea time, you know, and in, BBC One 
1976, there were only three channels. So if your film was on BBC One, you probably had 20 million people see it. It was kind of astonishing when you think about it. So did this lead to, because I've been doing some research and I saw that you were lucky enough to work with Jim Henson back in the day. That's correct, yes. That's pretty damn good. One of my favourite and still to this day films is Dark Crystal. I think the way it's made and the, the kind of the practical effects and the puppetry is just, it, it looks timeless. Even now when I watch it, it doesn't look like it's 30, 40 years old. And to get to work with someone that's such a legend, and I don't use that word a lot, but Jim Henson is, that must be something that you're very proud of. Absolutely, and he was in it. I mean, I was on Dark Crystal was the film I was working on um, in 1980, uh, and in the creature shop they had a, a workshop in Hampstead where they used to build all where they were building all the creatures, and they were building the creatures for Dark Crystal for I would say 18 months before they started shooting. At the time, Jim was uh, doing the last uh, season of the Muppet Show and also doing. Um, the Muppet Caper, Great Muppet Caper, the second Muppet movie. Yeah. So he was very, very busy, and he lived across the street um, from where we were, where he had his uh, creature shop. Um, and so we, we, we were in there sort of all week building monsters. And then on Saturdays, when he had his day off, he'd come in and, and look at them, basically. And, and it was a fantastic job. And I remember shooting video tests on all the creatures from Dark Crystal in, in the workshop. And it was a, you know, I was 19. It was a great job to have. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was a wonderful time. And, and Jim was a wonderful man. Uh, I'm still very good friends with um, with his family, with his daughters, with um, Lisa Henson in particular, and um, who I made a number of films with. And, uh, yeah, he was quite something, Jim. He was... And, and the whole atmosphere on the... Um, on the show was very interesting. It was just interesting to see how he ran all those shows and had all those people working for him. Because he kind of was Kermit the Frog. And if you think about it, Kermit is always running a show. He's, he's an impresario. He's in charge of the Muppet Show. And it was a bit like that for real. It was basically a party every day. So then after that, in your career, you started doing a lot of music videos. Now, was this something you wanted to do from an early age, or was it because you just got given an opportunity? Because that's quite different to your short films, well, or you know. Actually, what what actually happened is I I went from working for Jim to the National Film and Television School. Yeah. In Beaconsfield, um, and and after I'd been there a couple of years, I I started making the music videos, and actually. Music videos in it was nineteen eighty three was the first one I did. They were they were very new at the time. MTV had just started in the US and it hadn't started in Europe yet. So um, you know, there were times when bands made video clips to go with records, but but generally they didn't necessarily. So this whole thing of every band making a video for their single was very new then. So it wasn't really something I I, anyone even talked about as something you would do for a living. It was kind of brand new when I started it. Um, but I was very, very lucky that the first video I did, the, the first one happened to be a hit all over the world, which was uh, Red Red Wine for UB40. Wow. And it was a kind of bizarre thing. I went up to, I was a film school student. I went up to Birmingham and made the video with them. Um, with the guys up there and and finished it and delivered it and two weeks later it was just number one it was 
kind of bizarre. Sometimes things happen like that. You know? I mean, you got to work with some amazing artists. Frankie goes to Hollywood, Roy Orbison, some absolute that's legends. Correct, yes. Yeah, that must be incredible to look back at. It was definitely a lot of fun. Um, and um, a really memorable experience. Uh, you know, I, I, in 19, I, did, I only did it really from 83 to 85, but I was lucky enough to be involved in a lot of very successful records. I mean, I was lucky that the first record I did went to number one. Yeah. And the second one I did was Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Yeah. So uh, there was a brief period where I would walk into record companies and they thought, I, I must have the magic, you know. <laughs> Do you think it's quite sad now when you look back when, you know, if you watch MTV now, there's no music videos. It's all just, you know, teenager sort of... Yeah, but just... all the videos are on YouTube. Yeah, it's a shame. There used to be a really good art in a music video, and I'd love to watch bands like Nine Inch Nails or Tool or Smashing Pumpkins. And really, these, these bands used to put a lot of budget and time in. There's award ceremonies. And they now... still do that, don't they? I mean, uh, yeah. the things like Lemonade and things where people have spent money and doing longer form things they just don't seem as i don't know i just remember perhaps it's me getting old but you know like back in my day but i just remember 20 years ago watching mtv all day and you could sit there watching these amazing music videos for these really good bands and now i just don't see as much heart or effort it's usually just a video now of a band playing i just miss those kind of short little films that bands like rem would do and these big bands it just seems a sh i don't know perhaps it's just not a demand anymore because of the record sales etc well, except of course, you know there are sometimes you have a video and, and and you can rack up you know sixty, seventy, eighty million views on YouTube, and that still definitely happens. Yeah, I, I think it's like all these, you know, and, and also back in the day, you'd make these videos and and they would sort of disappear into the ether. Interestingly, now they're all the videos I made in the eighties. Every single one of them is on YouTube. <laughs> so in a sense, they're more available now than they ever were. So after this, obviously, 90s was very crucial for you. One of my favourite um, horrors of all time is Candyman. I think it's just genius. It doesn't look dated. I love the story, and that must be one of your most proudest moments. I mean, to write and direct that is it is a it's a horror classic, and that's not easy to achieve that title. Well, thank you. And uh, it seems to have lasted. I mean, the the film I made, of course, before Candyman was Paperhouse. Yeah, which is. Kind of a little cult classic in its own sense, I think. How was it then, getting involved in Candyman? How did that all come about? Um, well, um, basically, I read the... the um, uh, I was sent, actually, a, an adaptation of a different Clive Barker story from the Books of Blood. I think it was In the Flesh, which is another one of the stories in the same anthology. And I wasn't sure about how to do that because I can't even remember why, to be honest. Uh, but I remember in the same book, there was the story of the Forbidden. Um, and I read that and thought, oh, this is actually pretty good. So I knew Clive a little bit. I've met him. I was shooting something at Pinewood when Clive was doing Nightbreed. So wow. I think we'd had lunch. We, we didn't know each other well, but I'd met him. Um, and... We had the same agent in the U.S. at the time, and I called him up and said, you know, ask Clive if he was interested in um, adapting 
forbidden into Candy Man? And he said, yeah, if, if I could, he'd give me a free option. If I could set it up, he wanted to be the executive producer. And actually, I went to see Steve Gullman, who was um, the producer of Propaganda at the time, and he, he uh, bought it on the spot. Uh, and we basically went off, to, went off and did it. It was one of those things that was very, very simple. Uh, sometimes, sometimes it works out that way, you know. Did you ever really expect the response it got? Because obviously now it's one of the most talked about horrors. It's you always get those people talking about the mirror now and saying out Candyman, but it's stuck with people. It's up there with Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween. It's always that go-to horror film. And do you ever expect it to have that kind of success? Well, I mean, yes and no. In as much as that. Um you know, when it came out, it, it was successful. It did well, but it's become much more successful over time since then. It just sort of never went away. And I think it's, you know, it does sometimes take time for these things to really fully embed themselves in people's, um, in the pantheon, you know. Um, I, I think the, the movie obviously had some original things going on in it. For me, the thing that was interesting was when I changed the setting from Chicago, from uh, Liverpool to Chicago, was the big change for me. And then I went to Cabrini Green and, and saw, you know, what was going on in the projects in Cabrini Green. And then, and then I realized that the character had to be an African American. And that brought up all kinds of other issues. I think that's really what has made the film last is that it, it was suddenly about something different. That stuff just kind of happened organically from going on a trip to Chicago. It wasn't something I uh, went, oh, this is what we should do, which is, it was how it was. I think sometimes with things, if you if you do what's, if you film what's there and you film what's in front of you, you can't be wrong. And if you're trying to imagine things all the time um, and come up with ideas, you're often wrong. <laughs> And what's your thoughts now about, obviously, the remake? Because a lot of the classics from the 70s and 80s are getting remade. There seems to be a big... Well, it's not a remake, it's a sequel. So I think it's... I'm actually really looking forward to it. I think that at this distance, having uh, Jordan Peele's perspective on it is really fascinating, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does with it. Considering we've had the success of Get Out and most recently Us, you must know it's in safe hands with someone like that. Well, yeah, and I think, um, you know, obviously, in a sense, my perspective on the film was always touristic, and that's what Virginia Madison's character is. She's like a tourist. She thinks she's a white saviour going in there. Of course, she ends up not being one at all and being basically the trouble herself. And I think that was a kind of interesting twist in the story. But now I think... Uh, Jordan's approaching it from a very different point of view, and I think that's interesting. I'm really, really curious to see how it turns out. And I think it will only um, enrich the whole mythology and everything else. So I have high hopes. Another one that I didn't realise you were actually involved in until I started doing a bit more uh, research was Mr. Nice, and one of my most read books at university was that. And I, oh, yeah. I've, been, I've been a huge fan of it. I didn't realise you were involved in that, and I was reading today and doing a bit more research, and that must have been a nice project to get involved with, with the source materials already there, but then to add your kind of perspective on it and make it your way. Yeah, I really had a lot of fun doing that film, actually. 
um, very much wrote the script for Reese Fans to play because he seemed like the embodiment of Howard Marks in many ways. Um, and he was great to work with. Uh, and it was just a fun, kind of glorious, light-hearted way to actually talk about something very serious, which is the horrifying monstrosity that is the absurd war on so-called war on drugs, you know. Or as Howard always used to say, you know, what, what are drugs? They're plants. So, what, so if we're going to war with the plants. What are we doing? It's <laughs> a good point. Um, so, I, yeah, I always really enjoyed that movie. Um, that was a fun film to do. And then most recently, um, you've just released Samurai Marathon 1855. Correct. Uh, how's that been? And it's very different, isn't it? You've been working away from the good old home of England. You've been uh, overseas and the, 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 the project is on a huge scale, isn't it? It's really a samurai picture, yeah. It's like an old-fashioned Jedi Geki in the style of um, the 60s Kurosawa film. So there's a bit of humour bit of you know drama and lots of sword fighting um but that was also a very fun thing to do i mean i think it's a thing of what i was saying with candy man the thing that was interesting to me was going into cabrini green and trying to really represent the point of view of the people that lived there in the same way um when i did the samurai picture i, I wasn't a western film going into um japan it was a Japanese production that I got hired on, which was actually much more interesting. Yeah. Uh, in that I was basically offered the film by Jeremy Thomas, who was the English producer on it, and they went to meet with uh, uh, Toshiaki Nakazawa, who was the Japanese producer. Um, they had the story, and, and they had a screenplay too, which I then did, did a lot of work on um, and rewrote it, and then it was rewritten in Japanese. So there was a good year and a half of backwards and forwards trying to get the whole thing done and and it was you know at the time it was a very interesting thing to engage with which is the the complexities and curiosities of um, Japan in the Edo period uh, which I wouldn't claim to be an expert on but when I started I knew absolutely nothing about but certainly by the time I finished I knew a lot more than nothing. <laughs> was it quite challenging because it is a much different sort of um, setup and production for you to work on, and obviously um, being with a different crew and being hired onto it. Um, did you find it quite challenging? Well, it was actually a lot of fun, to be honest with you. One of the things that's, you know, the things that uh, unite us, we're always obsessed with the things that are different, but the things that we have in common are much greater. And one of the things we all have in common is the language of cinema, which is the same everywhere in the world. You know, Japanese and English are such different languages in terms of the way that they function. <laughs> but Japanese use a close-up the way we use a close-up. <clears throat> and it's interesting that it's, it's such an international language that's internationally, the grammar of cinema is comprehensible in everywhere in the world. And in the same way that music is. Yeah. And, and I think that's very interesting. Um, and I think the also, Edo period Japan is kind of a mythical time, the way that all cultures have this sort of mythical golden age, the way that in Europe we have the Knights of the Round Table, and in the US they have the Wild West. And it's kind of an arena where you can play out 
moral dilemmas and dramas and in a more intense and simplified way of fights between good and bad. And those things make the genres weirdly international, I think. And certainly Kurosawa was very influenced by John Ford. And then in turn, his films really influenced Sam Peckinpah and um, uh, George Lucas and all those people. So there is, there's been this constant uh, circular influence of the, between Western cinema and Eastern cinema through the Samurai film and the Western. And so for me, going and making a, a Samurai picture, it was kind of um, bringing some of that, bringing some Western influence in, into the Japanese pictures. And I think really what I tried to do was go back a bit to the early 60s, late 50s Kurosawa pictures or Mizuguchi pictures where they had a slightly more um, comedic and dramatic approach. And I also wanted to approach the action so that it was frightening rather than balletic. Instead of it just being just crazy sword fighting, you wanted to feel like you were going to get your head chopped off and it was going to be dangerous. I love it. And I'm, I, I, I hope this film gets uh, a good distribution. I hope a lot of people in the UK see it because I was lucky enough to be sent uh, an advanced copy and I thought it was fantastic. Well, thank you. And also we were lucky enough on the film to have Philip Glass do the music. And I think the combination of the incredible landscapes in um, in uh, Yamagata in Japan and, and the costumes and the samurai and the horses, it just produces a really interesting effect, I think. So what's next for you? How's the 2020 looking and the next couple of years with any films? Have you got anything in the works at the moment? Or are you looking at sort of projects to get involved in? Well, actually I am in sort of the early stages of preparing a film to shoot in the UK later this year. Um, but I can't tell you what it is. Oh, not even a little clue. <laughs> the only thing I'll tell you is that it's 80s-tastic. Oh, well, you got me on board. My favourite films are all from the 80s, so I'll, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm hooked already. There you go. And then what I always ask people that come on the podcast is a lot of inspired sort of young filmmakers or editors or cinematographers, they all listen to the podcast for, you know, advice and how they can get into a career. Now, you've been there, you've been there and had a solid career for many years. What what advice do you give for people that are trying to become a, a big name director or like yourself who started out making some sort of Super 8 films? How, how would you tell people at this time now when it's, so difficult in a market that's so flooded with different filmmakers to try and get your name out there? I think you just have to make, make your own stuff and keep making it and enjoy the process. Because if you don't enjoy the process, it's never going to be any... There's never going to be a point where it's more fun. You know, it's never easy. It's always hard, but, but, but it's a lot of fun. But if you... If you've, that's, that's it, really. Just do it and enjoy it. And, it, you know... And, the outcome is the outcome, and you can't control that. I mean, I just always have fun making films. I want to thank you for your time today, Bernard. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Excellent. Um, good luck again with the new film. I look forward to when the announcements are made. And, um, yeah, I just want to say how much it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I do really appreciate your time. Right, thank you very much. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Bernard. What a great guy. What a great guest. So many stories. Oh man, if you're a filmmaker and you're listening to that, surely that inspires you. And you know what? I'm not a filmmaker, but listening to him, I want to go and buy a Super 8 camera and start making films straight away. 
I really hope you guys out there enjoyed today's interview. And you know what? It feels really good to be back. It's like a couple of months off, you think, ah, oh, will I enjoy the break? And I did. I had some time out. I got to see friends, spend time with loved ones, and actually just do things I've been missing out on because I've been podcasting now for five and a half years. So to take a bit of a well earned break, it was needed. But I'm back now and I've got so many, and I mean so many interviews recorded, I can't wait. So it's going to be back on track with a weekly episode for the next few weeks. My Patreon is going to be having a lot more focus. I'm going to be getting a lot more different prizes for everyone. I'm actually going to be doing some interviews that are going to be exclusively just for my Patreons. And even though I took a couple of months out, I did notice a few Patreons stop and I thought come on guys, let me just have a bit of a break. So if you're listening and you've stopped your money, come on, I need that because it means I can host the episode, I can get it out there, I can travel around the country, I can do more interviews and get more episodes for you. So it really is a win-win for you. And you can sign up for as little as something like 60p a month. You're going to be getting four episodes, so break that down to 15p. Surely this is worth more than the price of a chomp. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's worth it. Also, if you go on markandme.com, there's links to my Facebook, my Twitter, my Instagram and my email address. As you know, I take a lot of time on social media to respond to everybody that comments, everyone that gives feedback on episodes. I read absolutely everything and I take pride in that. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, please let me know and I'll come back to you. As I've said, please get on the Patreon. I have lost a few people and it's really important for me to get back on track. I did take a well-earned break, but I'm here now and there's not going to be any more breaks. So invest that money, win yourself some t-shirts. I've actually just signed a deal with Last Exit to Nowhere. So you're going to be getting some even more amazing prizes for those guys. Seriously, just get involved. It's going to be great. I'm going to be back in a week's time with a brand new episode. So until then, thank you for listening. It's great to be back and I'll speak to you all in a week's time.